Occasionally on display at the Art Institute of Chicago is what I might call a golden calf. It is ancient, perhaps one of the oldest things in the collection there. If you're imagining a Cecil B. DeMille calf staring over people as they dance around it, you will be disappointed should you see it. In fact, it's so small that you might miss it. It's only two or so inches tall, and it does not look very much like any calf that I've ever seen. But it was apparently an object of worship in its day. It had power. Or perhaps I should more correctly say that the people who worshipped it gave it power over them. Now it sometimes sits behind a glass case for a sort of thing that a person who's interested in metallurgy or design or history can stop at and take a look at. Paul, speaking in today's lesson from the book of Acts, would not have seen this idol when he took his tour through Athens sometime after Jesus' death. It was much older than his contemporary Athenian culture, and by his time, it had probably been left behind somewhere in a Middle Eastern city, the power that it had been given long gone. But traveling tourists that he was, Paul found plenty more things in Athens that were worshipped. In fact, he tells his audience that he has spent time looking carefully at the objects of their worship. We can presume that, at least in part, these were items that his audience decided to worship because of the power that generations of people had given them, just like the power that had once been given to that tiny golden calf. Let's not assume that Paul's speech got into Holy Scripture simply because he was speaking of silver and gold and carved marble in first century Athens. I say such a thing because as I continue to remind myself and anyone who will listen, Holy Scripture is still with us because the stories that Holy Scripture tells us are just as relevant today as when first told around an evening campfire or in a room full of frightened followers of Jesus or read aloud when written on papyrus so that the story and its implications would not be forgotten. The initially uncomfortable news for us is that as we listen to this piece of scripture, Paul is talking to us as surely as he was talking to the Athenians, telling us that he has been looking carefully at the objects of our worship. Now, we don't carve much marble these days, and there aren't that many goldsmiths around. But we still have so many objects of worship, items to which we have given power to control our lives. Paul would likely see silver and gold and marble replaced, for example, by a stock market chiron running across the bottom of a TV screen. Or our membership cards in political parties or social causes to which we subscribe or perhaps a signed discriminatory piece of legislation held high in pride for so many people to see. There are but three examples of how such things as tribalism and our quest for personal advantage replace respect, let alone concern or love for others. We love our idols which come in so many different forms. I remain fascinated by a comment made by Alex Trevelli on a New York Times podcast I heard two weeks ago in which he said 
that the economic miracle of China was to turn all of its people into low-cost labor, an object of worship that objectifies others, a low-cost labor that enables cheap merchandise for all of us, and calling it a miracle of all things. And we dismiss as primitive people who might once have danced around a golden calf. Paul knows what we see and worship. As one who had his own history of persecuting others, he knew a thing or two about idolatry that went beyond stone. And deep inside ourselves, we also know what we worship. We're always attempting to turn dross into gold. We subscribe to an untruthful alchemy. The gospel addresses this reality as well when today's gospel story has Jesus saying that unfortunately the world does not see the spirit of truth. Now both lessons from Acts and the gospel start with bad news, but eventually out of that bad news comes some good news. Where this good news comes into play is what we in the day-to-day religious world call a metanoia moment a change of heart and change of focus moment. Centuries ago, this change was clear in the baptismal liturgy when the question, do you turn to Jesus Christ, involved physically turning around from facing outside the doors of the church toward facing inside. The good news is that what we do here through open doors, and warm hearts and scripture proclaimed and liturgy enacted, well, all that stuff helps us start seeing new and different possibilities in the lives that we lead. The messages of Paul and Jesus start to merge. Paul tells us that God is as close to us as the lives we lead. We live and move in God, he says. Don't look for exterior objects to give meaning. Moth and rust consume. And to boil down what Jesus says, it is an effect that when we love, we see God. God's not found in human constructs, as in which political party we support or our desire for personal ease or advancement at the expense of others. Our chosen messiahs will disappoint us. God, that is, that which is holy, is found in looking in the faces of the people around us and deciding that they will be treated with love and respect, treated as our equals, which is the resurrection message I have tried to come to grips with myself and hopefully proclaim to anyone willing to listen for going on 33 years now. As Jesus says later in this same gospel, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. There are so many ways both literally and figuratively, through which we can fill empty stomachs and starving hearts. Our call is to stop giving power to that which will disappoint us. Stop following idols. I've not yet fully learned how to do so, and most likely neither of you. It's hard to stop looking at those bright, shiny things that we hold in such awe. But we're going to keep looking for the resurrected Christ in the next person we encounter. And the next, and the next, and the next. One day, we'll discover that idolatry will lose its power. 
we can put those idols away in a box just big enough for a tiny golden calf. It is then that we'll finally understand why we've clung to resurrection as the central story of this faith that we call Christianity. You see, there's no better way to live, and there's no better way by which to get ready to die. Amen.